you. If this is your first time here, um, you have questions, you have comments, you have something that uh, you want to say or you want to talk about, please let us know. We'd love to know you in any way we can. Um, I especially want to say that uh, I think that part of, part of what makes, well, part of what I hope you feel as you come into RUF is that this isn't a place where you have to leave like your burdens or your fears, your anxieties, or whatever else it is outside of the door so you can come in and kind of <laughs> worship in this kind of pure, like kind of spiritual flame or whatever. But it's actually a place where you can come and you can bring those things in here. That God is actually really interested in that stuff. He's interested in what makes, keeps you up at night. He's interested in what you're afraid of. He's interested in your fears about graduating, your fears about whether I'm going to find friends or not. He actually wants you to bring that into him. And he actually wants to carry that and bear that with you. That's part of why we re- read the uh, scripture that we read before, a little bit earlier, right? That Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He gives us rest because he takes our burdens. So this is a place for that. And I just want to say as we get started that if you're weary, if you're burdened, that this is a place for you. So I'm going to begin tonight. I'm going to read the scripture. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get started here. So this is uh, Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there is not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's here with us and that it dwells actively among us. God, that it pierces between the division of soul and body, between marrow and every joint that divides us. Lord, I pray that you'd use that word to pierce our hearts. That we would, in that piercing, know you and be known by you. Um, Lord, that it would be something of what you mean when you say that we have to die in order to live. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us and that uh, the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight tonight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So y'all, the first half of the semester is uh, trying to get some kind of theological bearing on kind of relationships. The second half is a lot more practical. The, this week and the next week are kind of an in-between kind of gray area. Um, and I, I want to say that because one weird thing about our culture is it feels like we're taught how to do everything, right? Like driving, spelling, math, ballet. I mean, you name it, we're taught it. Except for the one thing that feels like the most important thing which is relationships. You're kind of expected to kind of figure out how to do relationships from pop culture, from your parents. Some of it's a good thing, some of it's a bad thing. And it's similar to what C.S. Lewis wrote when he said that the Bible tells us to feed the hungry, but it doesn't give us recipes. And I know that a lot of y'all come kind of hungry for how do I do relationships, and I'm trying to like hand you a few recipes to kind of go and try out and cook, and just kind of, I don't know, I'm going to drop that analogy. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> But I do this because it's RUF's belief that because the Bible gives us the big principles to follow and leaves the rest to you. And because there's no part of your life that feels more pressing than this one, 
We think that this is a great way to teach the Bible. That it's a great way to teach you about yourself. It's a great way to teach you about God. And how to navigate in the world with real wisdom. And so for the next two weeks, we're talking about friendship. So tonight, I'm going to talk about friendship and intimacy. And next week, we're going to talk about boundaries in friendship. Uh, but the large, overarching main point for tonight is this. And if you get nothing else, get this. That you should marry your best friend. Marry your best friend. That's all I'm saying. I know some of you aren't even thinking about marriage. Some of you are thinking about marriage. What I'm saying is, eventually, when you get to that point, marry your best friend. Um, however, let me start off with this one caveat. that The idea of friendship has become so overused that we don't really understand, I think, uh, what that word means. That In our context, there's so many different ways that people use it. And uh, guys, I'm going to point you out on this for a second. But guys, at one point, she says something to you like this. I don't know. I'm just so lonely. I really just wish that I could have a friend around. And that's good news, isn't it, guys? Like, she wants a friend. She wants you around. That's awesome. But think about this line, which she says to you. I don't know. I'm not ready to commit. I really just wish that I could have a friend right now. Like, the exact same noun, almost the exact same sentence, two totally different meanings, right? Like, and one, you're going home and you're high-fiving your buddies. And the other, they're taking you out for pizza and you're eating your feelings. Like, <laughs> there's a big difference between those two, right? Uh, so before we move on, we kind of have to define friendship and what it means. So what is friendship? Look back here at Genesis. Uh, there's something really profound going on in Adam's poem there. He says, at last, at last, Adam senses that when he sees Eve, he sees more than a partner, more than a companion. What he sees in this vision of a woman is something of himself. He looks at Eve and he says, I love you. I am you. We connect in these profound ways. And the reason that's interesting is that there's this sort of crescendo to this passage where he had received some pretty disturbing news. And that's this, is that the world is perfect except for one thing. That even though there's no sin, God's made everything good, it's Adam and God chilling in the garden together, that God looks around and says, you know, there is something off about this. And so the man is alone there's not another person for him to be with. And so, to fix this, he parades all these animals in front of Adam. A giraffe? A horse? A dog? Like, what do you want? Who will be the helper? It kind of brings the tension up. And with each one, which one of these is his soulmate? And so finally, none of them work. And God takes something from Adam's side. And he puts him to sleep. He wakes up. Eve's there. And you have the first love song of the entire Bible. Why? Because Adam is moved by something deeper than companionship. So, so deep. Um, do you remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Did you ever see that? It's Tom Cruise, uh, Renee Zellweger. And in the movie, uh, Tom Cruise is a sports agent. And at the very start of the movie, like everything kind of goes wrong. Like He tells his boss off by writing this big email to his office. He winds up quitting. He tries to rally the troops and say, who's going with me? We're out of here. And it's crickets. Like Nobody, nobody is going to go with them except for one person, which is Renee Zellweger. So they've packed up their stuff. They're, mo- they're moving out in boxes. They're going down the elevator. And in the elevator with them are the- is this deaf couple. And they're signing to one another and having a conversation. And at the end of the elevator ride, Tom and Renee get out of the elevator. And Tom looks at Renee and says, you know, I kind of wish I knew what they were saying. And she says, well, actually, I had a deaf aunt when I was growing up. And what he was saying to the woman was that you complete me. And that's the line for the whole movie of you complete me. And really the whole rest of that movie is Tom Cruise trying to figure out how to have intimacy and how to to have a real relationship with a real woman. And at the end of it, they've gone through all these travails, all this hard work, 
And he looks at her and he's standing in the darkness of her doorway and says, you complete me. And he's got it. And from there they can move out stronger together in the world than if they were alone. And that's the kind of friendship that Adam is talking about here. That together with this other person who completes you, you can go out into the world stronger than if you were by yourself. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves defines friendship like this. He says, it's the deep oneness that occurs between two people who are journeying towards a common horizon. It's two people who are going in the same place. And he says this, he says that in, uh, he makes a distinction between eros and philos, between erotic love and friend love. Um, these two kind of loves are distinguished by their object. Then in erotic love, you look at another person, and they look back at you and they say, I want you. And friendship love, you'll are journeying towards this common horizon. And if you could map it out, that relationship would look kind of like an A-frame house where people are going towards the same thing. But the Bible's position is this. And it's, kind of, it's from last week's warm-up question. It says, remember that where romantically, if there was this ideal person that you found super physically attractive, they're intellectually stimulating, consistently funny, deeply, deeply caring, they love Jesus, they have one quirk, they're obsessed with the movie The Fast and the Furious. They watch the movie at least once a month. They insert all these kind of, uh, all, all these kind of references to it in casual conversation. They talk about the deep, film's deeper philosophy. And the Bible says that if you were to marry that weird, quirky person who loved Jesus, it would be better than if you didn't marry someone who wasn't that quirky or that weird, but they didn't love Jesus. That The whole point of marriages and what makes them so good is that deep friendship. You're journeying towards this common horizon. That friendship love has to be the centerpiece of it. It's kind of like if somebody made you a cake, and you bit into it, and all that was to this cake was just icing. It was just the sweet, utterly sweet icing that was supposed to be on top of the cake. And you bit into it, and you're like, Where, where's the filler? Where's the real cake here? Where's the meat to it? And you said, well, it's just icing. That friendship has to be the cake of our relationships. That's to be the central thing. And the erotic love, the sexual desire for another person, that's the filler. That's the stuff that's on top that kind of garnishes it. But you can't build a relationship out of that. You can't build it. And I really want to say this, especially to people who are maybe upperclassmen, is that some of you are probably stiff-arming a friend who would be totally up for going on a date with you because um, they are into you. But you're stiff-arming them and saying, you know, I just don't see them that way. But some of you are going to graduate and go into the working world and you're going to have all, miss all these opportunities to meet new people. You may maybe move to a new place where there's uh, maybe not as many Christians and you'll feel how hard it is to date in the real world and you'll start to wonder. And you'll wonder, what happened to that person? That person that wanted me to ask them out or that person that I knew I could have asked out. That person who loved the Lord, who was emotionally stable, who you had a great time with, who was with you in hard times and good times, that person that was funny, that person who loved Jesus, who was cute but maybe not hot. Like, what happened to that person? I know, I know. H-A-W-T. <laughs> but on some lonely night, you're going to ask, what happened to them? And you're going to Instagram stalk them, but by that time, you'll see them with, with someone else, and you'll realize it's too late. That they're going to be off the market, because someone else will have totally realized... That you've missed that person. That, that people who love the Lord, who are stable, who are funny, who are with you in good times and bad, who are cute, are not actually that common, but are pretty rare finds. And if you had that person in your life, you should think about that person. Like Kyle said last week, 
A date does not mean that you're going to marry them. But you should at least consider going on a date with that person. Um, I'll say this. Uh, I just don't see them that way. Have you tried seeing them that way? Have you thought about it, really? I explained this in the last Q&A I did um, a couple of weeks ago. So some of you heard it, some of you haven't. But unless you marry them, all the friends that you have of the opposite sex are just going to evaporate, like eventually. They are. They're just going to disappear. Think about this. Wouldn't it be weird if your dad still called friends who were women in his clique from college just to find out what was going on? Wouldn't it be weird if your mom just kind of like, try to get in contact with her, uh, the guy friends that she kind of hung out with in college just to see what was happening in their lives. Like, wouldn't that be kind of odd? Like, don't you think that one day that would be weird for you? Don't you think? Why is that so? Why is that so? One word for you, intimacy. Intimacy. It's because of the deep intimacy and the deep friendship that you were made for. See, it's not like you're going to have a terrible falling out with these people. It's just the thing that you're getting out of them now that you're going to get primarily out of a marriage relationship in the long term. Like, that, the thing that you're wanting from them, like, you will get from, the, from a marriage relationship. Because the fact that one day, when you, if you stand up in front of a minister, maybe me, maybe someone else, in front of your friends, in front of your family, I, I'm, I do those things, <laughs> I, do, I do weddings. Uh, you stand up in front of me, maybe your friends, maybe your family, and you say, I take you to be mine, mm? to have and to hold. Yeah, that's right. Hopefully you're inserting that for yourself. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, to cherish and be subject to you until death do us part. This is my solemn vow and pledge to you. If you say that to someone, you're pledging yourself to them, to that person one and only. And what most of y'all are doing with your friends of the opposite sex and having fun and being close and the mystery of being in relationship with someone who's not quite like you but is sort of like you, is that you're cobbling together something of what you're wanting from that deeper relationship. And it's from those needs of what you want from those different people. But the problem is it's actually not able to give you what you want it to give. Which is that deep union, that deep oneness you're made for. So what I'm saying is just if you find that person that could work out, rather than stiff-arming them, give it a shot. Take a chance. This could be the one. If not, you know, you're just not going to be friends with them in the long run. So you don't really lose anything. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's my thought on that. If you were to get married, then you probably wouldn't miss them that much. You still might think, like, he's great, I wish him the best, she's terrific, and I'm sure that whoever she's with is better for it. But you just won't need them in the way that you think you need them now. Uh, because the things you're only kind of halfway getting from them, you'll fully get from your spouse one day. So we get a deep hint of this oneness uh, in verses 24 and 25. It comes when Adam says, in hold, or when it says, in holding fast... And it's further kind of fleshed out. And the two of them were naked and unashamed. And y'all, that's got to primarily come from one person. You see, all of us here want a relationship where you dig down deep and have true depth. But to do that requires time. It requires closeness. It requires effort. It requires trust. It requires consistency. Things that you need, but which are so exhaustively precious that they're only fit to give to one person in your life. And only fit for you to receive from one person. And that's your spouse. You see, you need intimacy. We all need intimacy that comes with big promises. That no matter what I see in you, emotionally or physically, I'm not going away. I'm not going away. Like, we're in this thing forever. One researcher that I really like to find intimacy like this, she said that intimacy, being close with someone, 
is the ability to hand someone the weapons of your own destruction. The stuff that if it got out on Instagram or Facebook or somebody tweeted it or somebody talked about it in your dorm, you would feel like my life is over. That you can hand someone else those things. And that rather than using those weapons to destroy you, that person actually takes those things to guard you and keep you safe. To build you up and protect you. Uh, the true oneness that we all long for only comes from being vul- that kind of vulnerability, that kind of intimacy with another person. And the physical nakedness that Genesis chapter 2 is talking about is only a hint of the really deep emotional nakedness that we long for. See, it's not just that Adam and Eve don't have clothes on. It's that they're absolutely open and naked with one another, and there's nothing for them to be embarrassed of. You see, they knew that when the other person looked at them, there was this absolute foundation of knowledge, of intimacy, of depth, that no matter what I see here, we're okay. Like I'm with you all the way in this. And I want to submit to you tonight that all of us are hardwired to want that thing, that kind of nakedness. I think there's an instinct embedded in your soul that longs to be known. That I wish I could share my life, my experiences, my fears with someone else. And yet because we live in a universe that's broken by sin, that same longing to be known is met with this other just extreme terror that is equally powerful. So we're pulled in both directions. If I want to be known, I'm so, so, so afraid to be known. Do you understand what I mean there? That this is where you get a little bit of your own personal schizophrenia that um, on the one hand, I long for someone to know me, the real me, to take off my mask and look at me and say, wow, I see you, I love you, I'm with you. And yet on the other hand, you're totally afraid that they would reject you and turn away from you and throw you aside. You long that you could fully be yourself, no hiding, no posturing, no wondering if you were good enough, just you with this one person in love. And this is the key to, to make sense of the ache that we feel in so many of our relationships. This is the ideal of what you were created for and that you long for. And you never stop longing for this. And every hookup, every binge on Netflix, every dumb relationship that you knew was a bad idea from the get-go, it's just navigating those fear and that longing. I want to be close to people. I'm so afraid of being close to people. And especially in regards to sexuality, this intimacy is a really big deal. Because I don't want to gloss over this, because the first song in the Bible is a naked man singing to a naked woman. Like, this is a big deal. That sex is not an appetite for us to just kind of be satisfied, to satisfy whenever we can. It's not something we experiment with other people. But it's a physical expression of the emotional intimacy that we should be having in a covenant marriage. Sex is a physical expression of the emotional intimacy that we should be having in the covenant of marriage. You see, when God made people in His image, He made them to love. To give love, to receive love. That love is this thing that we were made for. And when you're in love, it feels like, yes, I'm hitting on all cylinders, right? Like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be this language of intimacy, of belonging, of joy, of oneness. It's being able to say to someone, nothing else, not even clothes, just you and me. That's what it's about, right? But on the other hand, it's this language that's too full for language. That we all experience it, when we look into someone's eyes and love them and say, like, oh, well, I love you. <laughs> that we can't quite get it out, right? That words just don't seem to, to work. That it's designed to take, it takes more than words to communicate. It's designed to take the whole of ourselves and to communicate to two people in a covenant relationship where neither one of them is going anywhere. 
How our bodies are the same and they're one, the same way that our hearts and our emotions are one. This is why it's so exclusive, so profound, so deeply painful when it's abused or used outside of marriage. And y'all, this is not just like kind of Christian religious stuff. It's for everyone. To use sex on a lot of different people will really mess with your heart. It'll really mess with your emotions. That this is a language of deep connection, of deep oneness with another friend, with a covenant friend. And to have sex with someone is to say with your body, I love you and I'm with you and I'm not going anywhere. But then to have that person leave or to have the threat of them leaving is to confirm our deepest fear, isn't it? That I want to be known and I can't be known. I want you to be with me and to see me, fully see me. And yet when you do, you leave me. That's why it messes us up so bad. Man, that's why it's so powerful. And so I want to start to close with this. Because we live on the other side of Genesis 3 in a fallen world, all of this stuff is just inherently messy. The intimacy is messy. The sex stuff is messy. It's beautiful. It's hard. It's wonderful. It's scary. It's delightful. It's what I was made for. It takes you to the peaks. It takes you to the bottom. It's the quickest way for you to feel most alive. It's the quickest way for you to feel like I'm going to be sobbing on the floor of my roommate's apartment, right? It's hard. I mean, think about that line from Blank Space. Because we're young, I know, right? Let's go, let's go to the source itself. Because we're young and we're reckless, we'll take this way too far. It'll leave you breathless or with a nasty scar. Like, how many of our relationships feel like you're listening to a Taylor Swift song while you're riding a roller coaster, right? I'm young, I'm reckless, I'm in love. <laughs> I want to give myself to this person, but I'm afraid of what sort of scars I might get. And I know that it's only a matter of time before I step into that rose bush full of thorns, right? Because when you get together with a person, you're doubling up on both the glory in your life and the sin and the depravity in your life. You're meeting someone who's made in God's image and all the wonderful things that come with that. You're also meeting another sinner. And so you double up on all the good things and all the bad things too. And that's why so many of our relationships feel like we're on a freaking roller coaster. Because we're dealing with all those things at the same time. Most of our conflict in relationships, y'all, is trying to get into this dignity and this closeness and not finding it. Y'all, none of us lay, laid in bed when we were 15 and stared up in the dark and said, God, please send me someone who's just okay. Like, send me someone that's going to halfway care about me or halfway love me. Like, nobody ever prayed that prayer. But you, because you were created for a wonder that you don't have, that you long for and that you're haunted by. But the truth is, if you live on planet Earth, then you'll fall in love and you'll at some point end up being disappointed by that person. And the Christian version of this is that you'll find this noble love where you'll get all your needs met. But no matter who you are, you're going to run aground into this other person's sin. And they're going to run aground into your sin too. And most people have no idea what to do when that kind of ordeal happens. Our normal response is start kind of demanding that we get that ideal back. Like, I'm going to make you be the person I want you to be. I want to stop hurting. I want to stop longing. I want you to be my ideal. Or... We either uh, cut it off because, you know, things just aren't working anymore. But beloved, Christian relationships, I think, should come with something a lot more realistic. That we're armed with both the, the dignity of Genesis 2 and also the awareness of the fall and the sin and the brokenness in, the, in our lives. You see, so many of the people in this room feel like we're failures at being Christians. And I want to say this really gently uh, because in some way, like, we all are. I am too. That we fail in this stuff. Um, and a deep gospel-centered friendship, a deep covenant 
marriage, a deep covenant friendship says, you too? You're broken too? You're going to hurt me too? I'm going to hurt you? Man, can we do this thing together anyway? Can we go and move towards each other anyway? Can we move towards this common horizon of Jesus together? See, Christians aren't living under kind of the warm illusion of this electric blanket that makes us feel like safe and warm. But we live under the shadow of the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ, which shows us both our dignity and our depravity. That we can look at and navigate with our relationships and say, man, this is going to hurt me, but this is glorious. Look, in the story of Christianity, you see this story of deeper friendship. This is the story of God who wants to show us His love, who approaches us and wanted to have this deep oneness with His people. Does it make us come up to Him, but He comes down to us. And He dies for our sake. And that He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the friend who covenants with us. He's the one who marries you so that you can marry another person who's a sinner and that's broken and that's going to wound you. He gives the ultimate statement of friendship and love in His cross. And the way in which Christianity works is that each individual Christian filled with this knowledge of the beauty of that thought begins to overflow with that love and overflows with the peace that comes with it and suddenly I can risk it. I can risk the hurt. I can risk the cost of forgiving. Y'all, I have to be honest with you. It's dangerous for me to be married and to love that woman over there. And it's dangerous for her to be married to me and to love me. Definitely much more so for her than it is for me. And the reason is that she's a sinner and so am I. There's always a threat, always a promise of her disappointing me, of me disappointing her, of us hurting one another. For the rest of our lives, this is hanging over us. There's no way around it. So what keeps us together? What, what keeps you with the certainty that I can go into a relationship and be okay? One knowledge only. That the Lord Jesus Christ is my friend. And he's died for me, he's made me clean, and that it cost him everything to forgive me. And if he could do that for me, I guess I can forgive her. Or I guess if I'm with him, I guess I can forgive him. And we can be in this thing together. And we can fight, we can argue, we can hurt each other, we can laugh, we can kiss, we can have long walks, we can share deeply because of the cross of Jesus. That it gives us everything that we need. That here is someone that says, oh, you too? I'm not the only one. Here's my heart. Let's go to him. And that's what we hope for. That's what we long for. And for everyone here, that's what we need. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross of your son Jesus. That you love us, that you give us yourself, that you're totally committed to us. And so because of that, we can be committed to you. We can be committed to one another. Lord, thank you that we don't have to ascend some sort of mountain to get you, that we don't have to show you all of our good things, that we don't have to pretend or perform for you, that we don't have to live behind a mask, that you can see us clearly. And Lord, that's in your love that we can take off our mask and that we can be with people, we can be with one another, we can be with you, we can be with ourselves. Lord, would you empower us with that tonight? Would you heal us with that? Would you help us with that now and forever? In your son's name we pray, amen. Thank you.